Hi, and welcome to The Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist, and I'm the online editor at The Strad. You may have seen a video premiere on thestrad.com last week of a film called Absinthe, featuring cellist Alex Hirsch. Absinthe is more than a film series. It's also an album of music featuring works that were written before the European ban of the highly alcoholic drink. The music from which provides the soundtrack to a crazy narrative that sees Alex being haunted by a cello-shaped bottle of green liquid. Alex spoke to me about combining filmmaking, editing, directing, acting, not to mention music making, in collaboration with some close friends to build a creative form of storytelling that provides numerous access points for a wide range of audiences, as well as what classical music can learn from other creative industries. Here's Alex. Alex, welcome to the Strad Podcast. It's nice to speak to a fellow cellist. Um, thanks for joining me today. So we're going to be talking about absinthe, not only the green fairy, the very highly alcoholic green drink, but also the musical project that you've been involved with lately. Not only is it an album of music written before the European ban of the drink, but also a series of films as well, one of which is before this podcast goes out, we'll be enjoying its premiere on thestrad.com. Tell me, first of all, how did this musical project come about? Not only are you sitting down to record an album of music, but you're bringing together various elements of storytelling, including filmmaking and directing, as well as acting yourself. Tell me a little bit about the background and your interest in bringing these elements together. I've been working on Absinthe for three years now. And so often in classical music, as performers, we, we hear and we talk about this idea of be storytellers. Tell me a story with your playing. And I kind of realized there's something beautiful and very abstract about that. And I thought, well, what if one made an actual story with a piece of classical music, like a three-part narrative with a setup? a conflict and a resolution or a beginning, a middle and an end. And I started out a few years ago with a precursor project called The Green Room. It was an EP and a series of six videos. And this was really just me throwing spaghetti at the wall. I made a couple narratives. I made a couple videos that were more abstract. Some played with light. And I always knew that these were sort of the buildup to absinthe. I knew I wanted to do something with narrative, but I wasn't sure of what would that look like. Anyway, the green room, what I found from that project was the videos that were true narratives, like with a setup, a conflict resolution, had a way better response from people. And they were able to reach people who weren't musicians at all. And I grew obsessed with this idea of how we can grow the basic audience for the music we love. And that's really what I'm trying to do with this is I want to bring classical music to mainstream audiences without diluting it down in any sort of way, but rather like doubling down on creativity. Because I guess in a way with the video, for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but I'll just briefly describe. So it features you and also your pianist. Victor Asuncion. 
and it features your interaction with a seemingly haunting cello-shaped green bottle. Won't give too much away there. You know, you can approach it in different ways. You know, you can listen to the music and you can enjoy the soundtrack of Nadia Boulanger or Janacek, to name but a few. But also you can enjoy the narrative, as you say, and it's it's quite funny as well, isn't it? What inspired you to take this sort of comedic approach to storytelling? I love telling stories. I just I love making my friends laugh. I, I've always been into this. My grandfather is an unbelievable storyteller, and I think that rubbed off me. I'm a huge fan of stand-up comedy. I think all of these interests kind of just fuse together to help create this project. And that's another thing I really hope this project inspires of people is feel free to be creative, combine your interests. It doesn't pull you down as a musician in any respect like that. If anything, it just adds a whole new dimension and a whole new flavor to who you are as people. I mean, we have a big problem with a lot of classical music is most often we're recording music that's already been recorded for many years, many, many times by many illustrious performers. And it's very hard to make that relevant. And one of the ways to do so, I think, is find an authentic spin. Find something that's true to you and can't be mistaken. It's sort of related, but during the pandemic, I had an experience that totally changed my life that sort of was a huge realization for me. And that was, I had a friend who was sort of the ideal classical music listener, not a musician herself, highly, highly educated, like doctoral student at university, loves classical music, wants to learn more in her early thirties, loves going to concerts. And I sent her a beautifully shot video of Debussy Claire de Lune, played by a friend of mine. And she wrote back to me and she said, what's significant about this? And I said, what do you mean? It's beautifully shot, it's beautifully played. And she said, why wouldn't I just look up my favorite pianist playing this on YouTube? Why, why do I have to listen to this? And it was in that moment I realized, whoa, that's such a good point. In order to really get people to listen, you got to do something completely different. Or it's kind of got to be undeniably the best thing. And that's so hard with these pieces that are, are timeless. Yeah. So in that way, you're bringing in different angles in, in order to hook different people in. You know, someone might be attracted to the visuals. Someone might be attracted to the music. Someone might be attracted to the green bottle of, of fluorescent liquid, you know. <laughs> but in that way, it's it's inclusive, isn't it? And you're, you're bringing lots of different prospective viewers and, and audiences. I really just want to create access points for people that as many as possible, that there's so many levels you could maybe appreciate a project at. And, you know, the, the bottle itself, I had this premise of like this magical bottle shaped like a cello that's filled with presumably absinthe that follows me around and sends me on this adventure. And coincidentally, how the bottle even came to be is a friend of mine who's playing on the album had just come back from Italy and he brought me as a gift a bottle of limoncello 
in a bottle shaped like a cello. And I don't drink alcohol. That's another like ironic thing about this whole project <laughs> is I'm a total fraud. I've never tried absinthe. I quit drinking when I turned 21. That's a line in one of the films. Anyway, my friend gave me this bottle. I said, this is amazing. And you never know when one gift is like going to alter your whole life and send you on this like, <laughs> magical quest. So thank you, Chris. Good pastor. A quest is like an NPC, a non-playable character in a video game, giving you a side quest, which is going to lead you down a long and winding road. So let's talk a little bit about the challenges of creating a project like this. I'm sure there are many challenges, not least the fact that, as you mentioned to me before we started recording, it's completely self-funded um, and you run the whole thing by yourself in collaboration with some of your close friends and artists but also you know I want to know about what's it like creating a film because you know you've got to find places where you can shoot got to presumably do lots of takes and then once all that's done you know there's the editing process as well you know run us through the process of the filmmaking side of things I think everything starts with an idea and by that everything starts with a google doc not to plug a Google Doc or Google in any way in this, but I mean, most of the time I get an idea for something. I text one of my film friends. In this case, I, most of my film stuff has been done with Mike Ritani, who is an unbelievable filmmaker and dear friend. Shout out to Mike. Shout out Mike. Former stand partner of mine in London, we will say. <laughs> He's unbelievable. And then we, for this project, we have another friend who joined, and that's Miles Jaffa. And essentially, this whole project is made with just the three of us. There's a couple light actors who take part to, like friends who are also musicians. No one's a trained actor in any capacity. And it's utter chaos making such a thing like this. Like the shoot, there's no crew. It's skeleton crew on a whole new level. There's no extras. For example, if you're shooting something that's in public, do you just sort of have to hope that, you know, no one's going to tap you on the shoulder and be like, you can't do this here. Absolutely. Or you just got to wait for a clear spot where you can get your shot done, fingers crossed. So you know? many takes get ruined. Just so much time gets wasted doing these shoots. Things get ruined because a little kid runs into the frame or something like that. Most of the time, people think it's pretty cool when they see it out in public. They think they're like, wow, when does this come out in theaters? And I'm, I'm like, oh, well, it's a fine theater. But no, it's really exhilarating. It's amazing how, you know, the first movie is, or video is five minutes long. And that was multiple, like, 12-hour shoot days to create that. And that's multiple rounds of sessions of just guys sitting around with a Google Doc making a script, then making a shot list out of that so that every shot is completely planned out. I think for that one too, Miles sketched out what each frame is going to look like. You have your storyboard. Totally. There's a storyboard. We reference things, you know, like shot depth is a tool that gets referenced a lot. And that is still images from virtually every frame or every major movie that's ever been made. And it's an amazing resource. And you can just see, you know, you can search by lens, by director, by cinematographer, 
by everything. So if you have an idea for a style or something you're going for, you have a reference point. And I should be very clear here. I have no training in film whatsoever. I'm the biggest cello nerd you can imagine. I'm hardcore cello nerd. I love this outlet. It's a huge challenge, especially when you have no one sort of guiding you. It's a lot of just careful, thoughtful planning, a lot of mistakes being made along the way. But there's something really organic and beautiful about like working with your friends and just getting better together. Yes. And also, if there's something that you don't quite know how to do, it's quite a fun process figuring out how to do it. And then quite a wonderful sense of accomplishment when you feel like you've achieved something. You're like, oh, I didn't know, for example, that resource that you mentioned now that you know that exists. And then it opens the doors to so many other creative possibilities. I think that's the really, really fun thing about doing something that's not necessarily the thing that you trained in. I mean, both of us, we're cellists. We know how to cello to an extent. I think it also means that it's given us the skills to find out how to do other things. Absolutely. Another big challenge with this is promotion. That's a tough thing too. There's no labels working on this thing. There's no publicists particularly. And you spend all these years and all this time, money and energy creating something. And then you put it out and then people maybe click on it. They don't click on it, but that's it. It's like a moment in time. And it's very hard to reach people, especially outside of your network. And so another aspect of this project has been that quest of how do you promote an independent classical music project? Like, can you do this completely on your own? And that's what I've been sort of figuring out with this. As you mentioned, there's an album of music all written from right before the European ban of Absinthe. There's these videos that are like stories and they're strange. And the third component are the ads, as I call them. So these are accompanying videos to the main videos, is that right? Exactly. It's like how to promote a classical music project without promoting a classical music project. I was encouraged to hire a classical music publicist by some higher-ups, and I was really interested in this. But when I was quoted the price tag, I was simply priced out, and I had sticker shock. So I, I thought to myself, well, what if I had hired myself? Like as my own dream publicist and made my own ads. Like what would those even look like? Well, say I could get any placement in the world, what would that be? Now, I'm a huge fan of like architectural digest. I think the open door series on YouTube is fascinating. Like I love being a voyeur, like digitally touring some palatial estate in Beverly Hills. I don't know why. I, you know, live in a little apartment in Chicago, but I love this thing. And so I thought to myself, what if I made my own episode of Architectural Digest, but instead of a palatial estate, it's my little apartment in Chicago with a leaky faucet and edited exactly the same way. Mike's such a good editor and such a good filmmaker. This is like, he rose to that challenge, like there's nothing. And I called up Mike and pitched him this idea. He loved it. And then I thought, well, what if in the end, Instead of promoting a house or an interior or something, it winds up just being a giant ad for a classical music project that has like Ravel, Janacek, Scriabin, Boulanger. Twist. <laughs> exactly. The other one was, I was like, well, I would love to like 
be in Vogue magazine. I think that'd be so cool for a cellist to like be in the mainstream that way. But what if I made my own interview series and instead of Vogue magazine, it's Vague magazine. And instead of like being interviewed by a random person, it's myself in costume interviewing me with like a weird fake European accent. <laughs> and in the end, that is super awkward and strange and turns out to be one giant ad for a classical music project. It's a similar approach to what we were talking about before with the different access points, once again, because you've got parody there, you've got comedy, and you've got this kind of approach of doing something your way. And so it might be someone who stumbles across, maybe they like the way that something is shot, or they like the fact that you're taking the piss out of yourself. But, you know, in the end, it could be a way for someone to stumble across some music which they wouldn't have stumbled across otherwise. I learn a lot from other industries. I'm a huge fan of hip-hop, jazz, and like I love bossa nova. And just looking at how these other industries promote their art form and how they connect with audiences. I just think there's yeah. so much to learn in classical music from that. And this project is my attempt at just exploring. Like, I don't know if any of this will work or if it'll resonate with people, but I'm making it because I feel this compulsion to make it, like this crazy obsession. Well, just think, I mean, virtually every pop artist in the world will put out a music video of their latest single, right? And I think if you dressed up any pop singer or hip-hop artist in all black, made them sit in a chair staring at a music stand reciting their lyrics, it would have way lower engagement ratings. Like, I'm just throwing that out there. The trick is with all this is bringing this sort of to the mainstream, creating access points, but without diluting the art itself. I'm still playing the music I love dearly. I'm trying to play it as well as I can. Of course, you spend so much of your mental energy obsessing over the music and the execution of this. That's a beautiful thing. I realize more and more that that's interesting to me. But the storytelling and stuff like that, that can reach a way wider net of people. But also retain the classical audience. Exactly. Alex, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts behind Absinthe. And everyone should check out our video premiere on thestrad.com where the first installment of Absinthe is featured. So thanks so much. Thank you. That was Alex Hirsch. Do check out thestrad.com to view the first installment of Absinthe if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out thestrad.com where you'll find the latest news, articles and reviews on all things to do with string playing. If you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. There's 50% off an online subscription for students. If you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days, start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or a rating. It will help other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.